Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm JY Ping, and on today's episode, David talks to Seven Sage consultant Tiffany Williams about reviewing cases for LSAC's Misconduct and Irregularities Subcommittee and about reviewing files for George Mason Law. This is a recording of a webinar, and in the second half, Tiffany fields questions from applicants. Well, hello, everyone. If you don't know me, I'm David, a partner at Seven Sage, and I'm so pleased to host Tiffany Williams. Tiffany spent nearly 10 years working in law school admissions, most recently as the Assistant Dean for Admissions and Enrollment Management at George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. At Scalia Law School, she had both admissions and student services roles. She recruited and advised law school candidates and made admissions and scholarship decisions on thousands of applications for the JD, LLM, transfer, and visitor programs. Additionally, she advised the law school's diverse affinity groups and helped to create and facilitate the law school's diversity and inclusion certificate program. Tiffany enjoyed serving the law school admissions in pre-law communities, and she was appointed to three terms on LSAC's misconduct and irregularities in the admissions process subcommittee. She also presented and ran workshops at various LSAC, Council of Legal Education Opportunity, pre-law advisor, and college and university pre-law conferences and events. Tiffany received her BA from the University of Virginia and her JD from the University of Kentucky College of Law where she also served as a student member of the admissions committee. Currently, Tiffany is an attorney for the United States Department of Veterans Affairs. When she's not working, you can find her cheering on the Virginia Cavaliers or Kentucky Wildcats, spinning on her at-home spin bike, or spoiling her miniature schnauzer. So please welcome Tiffany Williams. Tiffany, thanks for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. Tiffany, I want to start by asking you about LSAC's Misconduct and Irregularities subcommittee. That kind of sounds like the CIA of LSAC to me. (laughs) Yes, a little like that. You're right. So the legal profession, I guess, despite, you know, lawyer jokes, the legal profession should be made of ethical individuals, right? So you're going to be responsible for your client's money and in some cases, your client's lives, right? So we want to be sure that you're ethical. And so your law school application is really your first step in that journey, right? So LSAC wants to be sure that you remain ethical throughout that process. And so essentially the committee is a committee of about, I'd say, 15 or 20 people from various law schools, the ABA accredited law schools, and many of them are actually admissions professionals. So they're going to be admissions directors and deans. Um, But occasionally there also are some professors and some law school deans that serve on it as well. And so we would just hear and decide cases that were brought before us as to if an applicant had committed misconduct and or an irregularity. And so I do want to stress something. So misconduct, that's obviously, you know, you intentionally did something nefarious or wrong or bad, but also it includes irregularities, which really just means that it's just something that's not right about your application. Something's just a little bit off. It could honestly just be an honest mistake. And so the committee really doesn't differentiate between the two. So it's one or the other. If you're found to be in violation of it, you're found to be in violation of all of it. So just, you know, keep that in mind and be very careful. Essentially, though, I served for about six years on that committee. I heard countless cases, some where the applicants would bring their lawyers with them, some not, some where applicants 
wanted actual hearings that I would conduct, some where they did not. But a typical case, and this is probably less of an issue now, but a typical case would be one where people would work past time on the LSAT. So the proctor would say, pencils down, and someone would actually keep writing for two seconds. So that would be like one of the more common ones. Or, you know, you guys were on section three of the LSAT and someone was working on section one. They had gone back to like fill in bubbles. Now, of course, with the digital LSAT, I think it's a little harder to do that. I believe at least that it sort of cuts off and you don't really have the ability to go back. But I imagine with LSAT Flex and some of the new things they have going on now, they probably have new problems now. So some of the other typical things, personal statement plagiarism. So believe it or not, you know, admissions committee members, they read thousands of personal statements. But sometimes you'll be reading and something just sounds like vaguely familiar. You're like, I feel like I've read this somewhere before. And so what we would often do, you know, you would put it into Google, the statement that just sounds familiar. And sometimes what would happen, you put a statement into Google and it pops up from a personal statement, you know, website that's showing some different personal statements. And so it's like samples. So let's say that you're an admissions committee member and you see that happened, right? So you're like, oh my goodness, this person got a sample from the website. They've submitted this as their personal statement. What that admissions committee member would then do is report that to the misconduct subcommittee. We would often see things like lying on a resume. And sometimes it would seem to be something that just wasn't that big of a deal. Like somebody might put that they had a 3.2 GPA when they really had a 3.18, but that's a difference, right? Or maybe they just changed the numbers around and they really had a 2.3. But again, you know, a mistake is still considered an irregularity. Some of the more egregious things that happened are kind of the CIA things you're talking about, David. But so I once had someone that had someone else impersonate them in another country and take the LSAT for them. Oh, my God. We had to get handwriting analysts involved to, you know, the LSAT back then, at least you had to, you know, handwrite the writing sample. And so we had handwriting analysis going on to try to figure out, you know, if this is the same person. There was one time where someone wrote a letter, a recommendation for themselves from Bill Clinton. And so we actually had to get the Clinton Foundation involved. And so, <laughs> so you know, most of the cases are not that. But I say a word of caution, though, to applicants, because I think that most of the cases often really are just mistakes. Um, it's someone just not being careful. But the worst part about it is if you are found to be in violation, then it's something that gets marked on your law school application. So it's a little star that says that you were found in violation. Your entire case file then gets put with your entire application. So, you know, even if you didn't apply to law school that cycle, if you apply to law school again 10 years from now, it's still a part of your file. And even beyond that, when you go to apply to the bar exam, the bar examiners ask for a copy of your application. Well, that's going to be included in it. So it really never goes away. So lesson learned, just be very, very careful. <laughs> I am so curious about how something even gets to the subcommittee. Yeah. What are the pathways? Can a school or can an admissions officer at you know George Mason frown when they read like four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth and they're like, wait, that sounds familiar. Is that your personal statement? So someone's reading it and they can send it to the subcommittee. Are there other ways? I mean, is that even true? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I say the most common way probably was an admissions committee member was reading something that just didn't sound right or something just seemed off. For instance, the Bill Clinton recommendation letter. I mean, obviously Bill Clinton could write a recommendation letter, but this was so poorly written that 
they just thought, oh, there's no way. And so they actually called the Clinton Foundation. They verified that they had not written a letter. And so then the admissions committee member, or it's typically it ends up being the dean of admissions of that law school. So if you have a file reader or someone that's kind of lower level in the admissions office, they would report it to the dean of admissions and the dean of admissions. But then it's really it's a form or it's a letter that you can write into LSAC and kind of report it. And so you're reporting it. But of course, you're saying, I don't know if this is something that LSAC wants to bring before the committee. And so LSAC has a group of folks that decide whether or not it's something that they have jurisdiction over, that the committee has jurisdiction over. The other ways they come in, of course, if it's, you know, working overtime on the LSAT, then LSAC or the proctors, they have a whole process they go through. So usually what would happen is if you didn't put your pencil down one time, the proctor would write you like a warning. You get a warning letter or a little warning slip. And so it kind of tells you the next time you get one, you're going to be reported to the committee. And so those are the two ways they normally came in. I occasionally saw them come in from other ways. There was once where a recommender, someone who had written a recommendation letter, found out that I think maybe the person had written it for the student to go to business school or something like that, and then found out the student was using it for law school applications and he had not authorized that. And so the recommender actually contacted LSAC and brought the case before us. So yeah, that's exactly right. So what's the due process like? You know, someone brings you up for plagiarism. You said the students sometimes got their own lawyers. How does the trial work? So that's the thing. It's not due process in the same sense of how you would have in a court system. And the same rules of evidence don't apply. And so it often was difficult when the students bring their lawyers. The lawyers really wanted the rules of evidence and typical due process to apply, and it really didn't. So someone brought charges before you. The LSAC would write you a charge letter, and they would say, you know, you've been sort of accused of this, and you have X amount of time to reply. And so you can reply either written form, or if you want to request a hearing, you can do that as well. And so, you know, I'd say that most people did not get lawyers involved, but there were some that did. And so sometimes the student will be on the hearing by themselves. They would just present their case. They could do opening, closing statements. Sometimes I would ask questions or the hearing officer would ask questions. If the student brought their lawyer, then LSAC's lawyer was also involved as well. It really just kind of in a listening capacity in case something really did come up that was legal. And so then a decision is made. And so one person from the committee is assigned the case that one person makes the decision as to whether or not misconduct and or an irregularity is found. The applicant then has the right to appeal the decision. If they appeal it, it goes before a committee of three people from that committee. So kind of an appeal body of three folks. They then all separately review it. They separately come up with decisions, you know, as to whether or not to affirm the person from below or not. And by majority vote, they decide whether or not to affirm it or to overturn it. And at that point, it's sort of just done. Yeah. So that's kind of how it works. And I would say I served on many appeal panels as well. And I would say nine times out of 10, the appeal panels typically did, just anecdotally from what I remember, they typically did affirm the lower person's decision. So what's your recourse if you're a student and say you get a gold slip? for, you know, continuing to write after time on the LSAC. Is there anything you can do that's going to help or is it just sort of over at that point? So from my understanding, if you're just going to get one of those, you typically aren't going to be taken before the committee. So you get the one slip as kind of a warning. If you get a second slip or whatever it is, at whatever point they decide they're actually going to bring you before the committee, 
your recourse really is within that process. You then have to sort of tell your side of the story. The way that it sounds kind of sounds like, oh, they're always or we're always going to find for, you know, the LSAT people or we're always going to find for the school. That's not actually true. I mean, there were certainly times where it's like, mm, you know, I don't really know. It seems like this LSAT person saw something wrong or, you know, the story the student is telling really makes sense. So your recourse really is just your ability to kind of tell your story throughout the process. But here's the thing. So LSAC, when you sign up for the LSAT and for LSAC services, you're actually signing something that says that, you know, you're bound by these rules. Most students, of course, have no idea about it, right? And so whenever I would do a panel or speak to students, I would always add in there, you're not reading the fine print, right? Like, just be sure to go back and read. So if you Googled it, just kind of Google misconduct and irregularities in the admissions process, LSAC, um, the rules come up. And I would advise all students, you know, if you're applying to law school to just take a look, just to be sure you understand um, what the different rules are and what you're being bound by. So you don't end up in that situation. It makes sense for future lawyers to read the fine print. It does. (laughs) (laughs) So when you're reviewing a file in your capacity as an admissions reader, how damning is it if somebody has something like this from the Committee of Irregularities on their record? Sure. That's a good question. So one of the things that the committee always stresses to the applicants, especially if the committee does find that there was misconduct or irregularity in the process, is that we're, of course, not making an admissions determination, right? So every school is going to get the entire packet. So everything that the person on the misconduct committee got to make a decision about whether or not there was misconduct, the school is going to get it as well. So the school has the ability to go through everything and the school could disagree with the person, right? And think that doesn't really matter. Heck, if I had read this, I wouldn't have found misconduct. I will say, you know, for someone that's reading an application quickly, because these files can be kind of thick. I mean, they're typically not just three pages. I mean, we're talking, they're usually 15, 20 extra pages or so that are added, typically at least, to an application. So if someone is sort of lazily reading an application and they see the misconduct flag, I think it probably could raise some red flags, right? I mean, you want folks in your law school that aren't going to plagiarize, that you feel like you can trust. And so I think it probably does raise red flags for a lot of admissions folks, but it's not completely damning, right? I mean, again, the admissions committee folks have the ability to go through the whole packet themselves. I would say, I mean, obviously, if you're an applicant, you're going to know whether or not you have been found to be in violation. And if you have, you must write an addendum about what happened, tell your side of the story, maybe something quick that the admissions folks can go to very quickly and see like, oh, it really wasn't that big of a deal. She wrote 3.2 GPA on her resume and it was a complete mistake. She meant to write 2.3. Something quick so the committee doesn't have to go through the entire packet. But yes, to your point, I mean, I think it does sort of raise some red flags. The resume thing is a little worrisome because it does seem so easy to write the wrong number. And of course, there's also a difference between your undergraduate GPA, the one that's on your transcript, and your LSAC GPA. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I would say that most times committee members or admissions committee folks are not going to report something that seems like, oh, was well, I can't say that. They're absolutely within their right to report a mistake. They absolutely can do that. I would say that when I have seen it reported about resumes, it was clear the student was trying to do some fudging in other ways. Okay. Now, obviously, you know, your transcript is reporting a GPA. I'll be honest, the one time that I saw it that I can think of right now was actually in a transfer application. 
because it applies to all applications. So even this is beyond your first year JD application. If you're applying to transfer to a law school, to visit at a law school, this committee still applies to you or these rules still apply to you. And what this student had done was they had reported an undergraduate GPA of like a 3.2, but their undergraduate GPA was really like a 1.98 or something, something very, very low. Yikes. They had gone to law school in one place and they wanted to transfer to another place. So their resume, though, that they were using wasn't the resume they had used to initially apply to law school. They were using a resume that they had sent out for first year summer jobs. And so they had fudged their undergraduate GPA because they knew that, from our understanding, they knew that the employers weren't going to have any way to really look up the student's undergraduate GPA. So I think the student was trying to make himself seem like he had a really great, you know, whatever it was, undergraduate GPA, when in fact he did not. And so the transfer admissions committee picked up on it and noticed, oh, this student isn't telling the truth here. You know, we see his undergraduate GPA. It was a 1.98 or whatever it was. And he's reporting something different on his resume that he's using for career services purposes. And so that's kind of how it came about. Now, again, an admissions committee person is within their right to report a mistake. And you'll see on LSAC's website, it actually does say that, that an honest mistake still counts. So still be very, very careful. But I think in practice, most admissions folks don't necessarily report something that's sort of that small. Not that they can't, but I think most probably don't. Yeah. If you do have a character and fitness issue, and this may not be something that was reported to the Committee of Irregularities, but let's just say you have a character and fitness issue, Mm -hmm. what do you recommend in your capacity as a former admissions officer, not in your capacity as a former member of this committee? What do you recommend that students do on their character and fitness agenda? I guess maybe it would help if you talked about one mistake that people sometimes made on a character and fitness addendum. And one thing that they can do that is going to ameliorate the circumstances. Sure. So, I mean, I think the most important thing is that you're just really plainly, just very plainly telling the truth. And, you know, you're not making excuses. So you really want to be careful about, you know, telling some story about why it's not your fault. I mean, we don't want to admit folks into law school that are going to be making excuses all the time for things that have gone wrong. We want you to take responsibility. And you want to be careful about indirectly making excuses too. Like sometimes students really want to set the scene and they're kind of telling more than just kind of the facts. They're setting the scene, you know, saying, I was really tired from my all night study session for finals. So I was speeding home. It's like, uh, I see what you're doing there. Uh, You know, trying to make an excuse in a roundabout way. At the end of the day, though, you know, you are speeding. So just kind of just tell us that you're speeding. So I would say just be sure that you're telling the truth very plainly, not making excuses. I would say, wait, what else did you ask me? Sorry, David. (laughs) One mistake and one thing that you can do well on this addendum. Yeah. So I guess the mistake is probably just not making the excuse, not telling it plain. I do think that in certain circumstances, if you learned a lesson from it, I think it can be important to say that you learned a lesson, right? So if there's anything that you did that's going to make the admissions committee have doubts or, you know, leave them wondering, hmm, did this person really learn or is this person going to be a problem? when they enroll in my law school, then you probably do want to say the lesson learned or something happened really recently, right? So if you got a minor in possession charge your first year in college, probably not that big of a deal if it's the only one you got. Now, if you got it in your fourth year, or you probably wouldn't get in your fourth year of college because you'd be of age, but let's say you got a DUI or something in your fourth year of college and you know, you're applying to law school a couple of months later, You probably do want to make sure admissions folks understand why it's not going to be an issue once you enroll in law school. 
So I think that's probably a mistake people make too. It's maybe not saying lessons when they should. And I would, I mean, I would say saying lessons when you shouldn't, but I don't think it's ever really that bad to say, you know, to say a lesson. If you learn something, you learn something. Right. I mean, I think one thing people are learning is that you should always say you learned something, but hopefully they really did. Yeah. I think it's okay to say that you learned something. Yeah. Hopefully you did. I mean, yeah. One speeding ticket, you know, did you learn something from that? You may or may not have. I think it's okay to not say that you learned a lesson there, but I think it's okay to say you learned a lesson too. So. Okay. That's good to know. Let's switch gears. I love asking people this. I think it's always sort of a, a shock and worth remembering how quickly admissions officers have to read files that the applicants labor over for weeks, sometimes months. <laughs> um, and so, oh, so I like to ask yeah. everyone who does one of these webinars, how much time did you actually spend on each file? So I'll start off with a very lawyerly answer of it depends. Okay. But on average, it probably was about eight minutes. Oh my God. Yeah. I know that sounds so bad because obviously folks spend months and months and we do appreciate it, but it's very quick. Now, some do take longer. And actually we were just talking about character and fitness issues. So that's an application that's probably going to take longer if you have something egregious or you have like a kind of a pattern of just a disregard for the law. What often happens is we're like, we're really coming through that because you've raised some questions in our head. So that might take longer for me to read and it might get read by more people than normal because we just want to be sure of who we're admitting to the law school. To be honest, sometimes it can actually be shorter just depending on the application. I mean, believe it or not, if you can really read an application in less than eight minutes, I think once you've done it for 10 years, you probably can read the important parts in less than eight minutes, but I'd say approximately eight minutes most of the time. Sorry. (laughs) What were the important parts for you? Well, it depends, right? So I'm sure students know this, right? So of course, seven stage on your website, you all post the median GPAs and LSATs of every school from the year before. So schools, of course, have goals to meet, right? So they have LSAT and GPA medians they need to meet, class size, scholarship budget, all of that. All those things are talked about with the deans and kind of set to some degree before the admission cycle starts. Of course, the targets might move as the cycle goes on. But so students are kind of classified. And I don't say this, like students are people and we obviously want to enroll a class of very interesting people with whom it'll be great to work with over the next three years. But at the end of the day, you know, we do have goals to meet. And so students are considered like a high, high. So, you know, your LSAT and your GPA are above our medians. A low, low, where both are below. A high GPA, where your GPA is above, but your LSAT's below or high LSAT. So depending on the type of application, I might read an application a little bit differently, just depending. So if you're a high, high, so your numbers are meeting both medians. So I don't really have questions about, well, I'll start with saying this. The questions that admissions committees, or at least I feel like admissions committees would really ask or want to know about students are, are you going to graduate from this law school? You know, will you graduate? Can you academically make it through? Are you going to pass the bar and can you get a job? So those three things are in the back of my mind as I'm reading every single application. I want to know those things. Those numbers count. They count toward U.S. News and World Report rankings. They matter for the school. And so if you're a high, high, if you're above both of my medians, I probably don't really have a question about, are you going to graduate? Don't really have a question about, are you going to pass the bar? Maybe about, will you get a job? So I might be looking like quickly, okay, has this person been employed Does this person have employment recommendations if they're not fresh out of school? I'm reading your personal statement kind of quickly to see, are there any red flags? Did this person talk about something crazy in their personal statement? Did they bring up character and fitness issues in their personal statement that they didn't flag 
on the other parts of their application. Although to be honest, if I was going to admit you, I actually did take a little bit longer to read your application because I'm admitting you, I can't really take that back once it's done. So I didn't typically read those very quickly. But if you have both of the numbers below the medians, that could be another reason why an application is read a bit quicker. In that situation, I always called it an uphill battle. It's not impossible to get into a law school with both numbers below the median, not at all. But it is more of an uphill battle. It's a little bit harder. And so typically, I'm reading those to see what can save this application. So, you know, your numbers aren't going to help me meet my numerical goals. But is there something about you that I really just like? And so usually, if you're a low, low, the first thing I'm going to do is look at your resume. You know, maybe you're a low, low, but you've had a 10-year career doing something really interesting. And so therefore, I know you're employable. I mean, if nothing else, you could probably go back to your former job. Maybe they would hire you in their legal department. You have this great employment history you can bring to the classroom. You know, just an interesting person. And so I'd hit on those points. So it really did depend on the type of applicant you were as to what I sort of considered important. And again, that was sort of just my way of doing it. You know, the beauty of an admissions committee is that everyone thinks different things are important and go about things in a different way. But that's kind of how I did it after 10 years, you know, kind of got it down to a little bit of a science. (laughs) Sure. What counts as interesting for the employment? I mean, what's maybe an example of something on the resume that might make you admit a low low? Well, let's see. I mean, it really, it could depend on the school. So An example, like with George Mason, they were a big, they still are a big law and economics school. So, you know, maybe you were working for like an economic think tank, something like that. I think it's pretty school specific, though. I think most schools love electrical engineers, people that want to do IP work. Seeing something like that might make me want to admit a low low because I know you're going to be employable. From my talks with career services folks, electrical engineers, it's very easy to get them legal jobs. Mm. I'm an IP. And so we'd love to see that sort of thing. It really did just depend. It could be a combination of what's in your resume plus a really interesting personal statement that you had. Like maybe your background is just something that I've just never heard of or didn't know anybody that had that kind of background. And so I think you'd be interesting in the classroom. So it's hard to pinpoint exactly. You kind of just know it when you see it. But yeah, that's kind of how it works. Yeah. On the other side, what's something that might make you reject a high high? Oftentimes, a high high that maybe had character and fitness issues, or I'll be honest, I won't say that it was a policy of any school, but I know of schools that will occasionally, they will not admit someone they don't think is actually going to attend if their numbers are just too high. They kind of have to care about acceptance rates and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I'd say just not showing sincere interest. So if there's like a why statement or a way that you can show like, no, 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 like, look, I recognize that my LSAT score is 10 points above your median, but I am still really interested. Because it is a reason why a school might want to deny you. They don't think you're really going to come. So like, why are we going to waste our time and resources? I would say it's usually that or it would be character and fitness issues. Do you think the essays get read more closely if you're a splitter? You know, if you have one median above and one below? I would say it probably depends on where in the cycle you are. So if you're, and this is a reason why you should actually apply to law school early, especially if you're a splitter. So if you're a high GPA or a high LSAT, and you're applying early in the cycle, typically, you know, we want to get those folks admitted, right? And so it's like, admit, admit, we might even read you like a high, high, if assuming your other number, of course, is relatively close to the median. So you're not, you know, way out of the ballpark there. But once you get later in the cycle, 
you don't know how off balance a school might be. They might end up being short on GPAs at the end of the cycle. And so you might come in with a 180 LSAT score, but maybe that school can't admit you because they literally cannot take another person with a lower GPA. Hmm. And in that case, maybe we'd be reading something more carefully just to decide like, who am I really, you know, we have just a couple of spaces left we can take of this type of student. Who do we really want? So yeah, it's possible. It could get right a little bit closer if you're a splitter, like later in the cycle. Were you personally looking at charts of how the medians were shaping up every day when you were reading files? Every day, every day, multiple times a day, multiple times a day. (laughs) Yes. So you (laughs) think of admitting someone and you're literally thinking like, what does this actual file do to my median? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially later in the cycle. So, and this is, I would say, you know, as if someone has higher sort of responsibilities in the admissions office, I would say your typical person, your typical file reader probably isn't doing this, but yes. If you have higher responsibilities, you would be responsible, of course, for the class that comes in. So in the beginning, you maybe not as much. I mean, I think you probably do have a sense, right? So if you know that you want to, I'm going to make up some numbers here. If you want an LSAT median that year of a, you know, a 169 and a GPA of a 3.8, you know, from looking at past year's classes and running some analysis, how many of a type of student you need to admit to yield what you need. And so you do, you have that idea in your mind, right? And so you're like, okay, you are looking like I'm this close to this number of of acceptances in this category of people. But of course, as you get closer and deposits start coming in, you get toward the end of the cycle. It's certainly something that you're looking at way more closely toward the end. Because yeah, every single person, I mean, it could throw off your median altogether. I mean, one person could, of course, right? So yes, I did. (laughs) Very regularly, you would see spreadsheets up on my computer. (laughs) Hmm. That's fascinating. Another question I always like to ask people in different forms, does good writing count in the personal statement or is it really all about what you have to say? In other words, content or eloquence? So, and again, I think this is like a personal thing. I don't know that I could speak for every single person of every admissions committee, but generally I think for me, it probably was more your writing ability than it was what you were saying. Now, again, you know, if you're a high, high, and your writing's poor might give me slight pause, but obviously your numbers are telling me that you're probably going to succeed in the law school. So I'm not as concerned if the writing is bad, but typically with high highs, like the writing isn't bad. I think especially if you're a low, low, if you're below both medians, I mean, we're really going to be looking at, because at that point we're concerned or maybe concerned. I won't say you're always concerned, but you're maybe concerned. Is this person going to succeed in this law school? And so you then do start to look, you're looking, okay, how's the writing? And so for me, I think the writing ability was a little bit more important. However, with low lows, again, you know, you really do want to tell a story. It's a way to connect to the committee. And especially if you're a low low, you don't want to leave any opportunities to connect to the committee on the table. And so I think your story maybe especially matters if you're a low low, you know, telling me that interesting thing that maybe quote unquote saves your application. And so it's not denied, maybe it's waitlisted or perhaps it's admitted. So both can matter. Certainly the writing ability matters quite a bit. Fascinating. Okay, I think we've heard enough of me. So let's open it up to questions. (laughs) I can read questions from the chat panel, but I really prefer to hear everyone's voice. So if you have a question, please raise your hand and I'll call on you. All right. Hi, Robert. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Thanks so much for doing this. This was a really cool opportunity. My question is, I'm older, I'm 36, I've been working 
since high school and I never went to college, never really saw the need until a couple of years ago when I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. So I went to, I did the Capella FlexPath program, but unfortunately, while internally at Capella, you know, I got high marks from them. They don't use a traditional GPA for that program. And so when I got my transcript translated through LSAT, it shows up as either a blank or a 0.0. So I was just wondering how that's going to affect my chances. Uh, I did do pretty good on the LSAT though. So not all bad. Oh, no. Okay, so I just want to be sure I understand. So your GPA is showing up on your Credential Assembly Services report as like a 0.0, so it's showing as no GPA? In one area of the report, it's blank. And then in another area, it's 0.0. And it's they do have a note in there saying they just don't translate the grades. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So, well, congratulations on deciding that you want to, you know, be a lawyer. That's excellent. And I will say that I do think, or at least for me personally, I was always excited to see folks with career history, some different things. So, you know, we don't want classes, just all the folks that are just out of undergrad. So I think that's wonderful. So the way that it works is, and this actually happens for international students. So if there are any international students out there or any students that got a degree from somewhere that's not in the U.S., you also come up as what we would term as a zero GPA, where it's showing no GPA essentially. And so that could be helpful in some ways, um, I guess, depending on how you performed in the school. How I was just talking about, you know, with splitters, right? So if your GPA was below the median of a school, but your LSAT was above it, sometimes a school might feel like they can't admit you because you may be hurting them on the GPA side. Well, the great thing about a zero GPA is you can't help them but you can't hurt them either, right? So I won't say that's good or bad. I mean, I guess it could be good in some instances. So if I were you, when I'm looking at the schools that I'm looking to apply to, I would say, you know, if your LSAT's above the school's median at or above the school's median, you have a really good shot there. And yeah, it's just, it's kind of just one of those things. Were your rates pretty good in undergrad? Yeah, I mean, the um, Capella has a translated transcript, which uh, unfortunately uh, LSAC didn't take, which they translated as a 4.0 GPA. So yeah, I mean, I did as good as oh you could. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, I would maybe attach an addendum or something that says that, you know, this is my GPA was. And so then the, you know, the committee doesn't have any questions. But yeah, unfortunately, that just does happen with some undergraduate institutions. Okay. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Good luck. Okay, let's go to Ivana. You can ask your question. Hi, thank you so much for doing this. I do have a question about underrepresented minorities. How do committees approach these, especially when someone has both a low, low? Yeah. So I will say diversity is something that I think that I would say all law schools, I can't really speak for all law schools, but everyone I know in the admissions world, it's certainly something that everyone wants, right? So it's something that's positive about your application. I would say... If you're coming in and, you know, you do have the high GPA, high LSAT, or you're a high, high, then obviously that's a good thing. And that really helps you, right, if you're also a diverse applicant. It's not, how do I say this? It's not like a for sure thing. You know, if you're a low, low and you're also diverse, it doesn't mean that you're going to get in. But I think if you're a low, low and you are diverse, it could certainly help your application into how I was telling, how I was saying to David, something that's interesting that might save your application. 
if you're diverse in some way, that could be an interesting thing that could save the application, that wouldn't have us deny it. They may have us waitlisted or maybe accept. So it can. I mean, if you're a low low for a school, it could actually be a positive towards your application. Right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hey, good luck. Thanks. Let's call on Elena. Hi, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Hi, thank you guys for doing this. I've heard a lot of different advice about how your resume should be tailored, whether it should have like an emphasis on your leadership experience or your academic accomplishments. And I wanted to see if there was any general advice about whether one of those is better than the other, or it should just be individual based on what your strengths are. I will tell you that I didn't have a preference. I mean, I do think if there's a story that you're trying to tell, right, you know, if you're saying that you want to go practice animal rights law, and there are things that you did that were, you know, organization and leadership or jobs or whatever, like you want to be sure to have those things in there. I personally didn't have a preference for either one of those things, though. I think that you just want to be sure to include the things that are helping to tell your story and helping to make sure the admissions committee knows that if you can, if there's some way to do that in your resume, that you are actually employable. I think that's a good thing to get across. Great. Thank you so much. Sure. Okay. Good luck. Thanks. Um, let's go to Kalinda. You can ask your question. Hello. Hi. My question is, how do you weigh an undergraduate and graduate GPA? So I graduated from grad school, so I have both GPAs. My undergraduate is I 3.8 and grad school is like 3.4. So like, what's more important, less important? Do they average? Well, I think you would average it, but that was just my question. It's a really good question. So you actually have the opposite that I think a lot of folks have. Like oftentimes people will have the lower undergraduate GPA and then the higher graduate degree. Okay. So this is something I love to talk to college freshmen because I love to tell them this. Your first undergraduate degree is the only thing that's ever going to count for ABA reporting purposes for a law school. So it's the GPA that I don't want to say matters most, but I'm going to say matters most to a law school. (laughs) So let's say that you went on and you got three other undergraduate degrees. Those GPAs don't count. It's your first undergraduate GPA only. I've before seen a medical doctor apply to law school. It's still his first undergraduate degree from 20 years ago is the one that really counts. It's the one that gets reported. So that's the one that's going to show up on your credential assembly services report. So I'm so glad to hear it's high. It's the one that the law school is going to count for admission and scholarship purposes. It's the one they're going to report to the American Bar Association. I always tell students that, and I see students do this sometimes, they feel like their undergraduate degree is low, they're unsure about law school, so they go and get a graduate degree in something thinking it's going to strengthen their application. And I always say a graduate degree GPA is never going to make up for your undergraduate GPA. Now, a graduate degree, of course, can show like aptitude for graduate study, of which, of course, law school is. So that's important. But good for you. That 3.8 is great. So I think you're going to do well this cycle. That's great. You. No problem. Okay. Thank you. Good luck. Alan, we'd love to hear from you. Hello, David. Hi, Tiffany. How are y'all doing? Hi. So my question is about super splitters. So for example, a CAS GPA around 2.5, but an LSAT of 170. How do admissions counselors look at this type of thing? And then does it make a difference if they're coming in from a STEM going into a patent law for the, with this type of application, or does that have no difference on the effect? So are you coming from STEM? You are coming from a STEM background? Yeah, in biophysics. How long ago did you graduate from college? Uh, 2019, June. 
Okay, so recently. So first off, I mean, I think admissions committees understand that STEM backgrounds often have lower GPAs. And so that's something we sort of expect. Now, you are a recent graduate, but the other thing I was going to say is that sometimes folks will be a super splitter and they have a 2.5 in just, you know, psychology or whatever, not from a STEM background. And they graduated 15 years ago. And so, you know, the question really is going to be the admissions committee is going to say, wow, what happened? You know, we're concerned about this person academically making it through. But if it was 15 years ago, this person has obviously matured and grown. And then in your instance, you're coming from a STEM background. And so I don't think anyone's expecting a 4.0. Obviously, if you're concerned or if there's something that sort of happened, if you thought your GPA could have been higher, you know, you're always able to write an addendum. But admissions committees do sort of expect lower GPAs from STEM backgrounds. Okay. Thank you very much. Sure. Good luck. Thank you. Okay, let's go to Omari. You can ask your question. Hello? Hi. Yeah, hi, we can hear you. Hi, how are you? So I am applying to do the LSAT for the first, very first time in January. And I was wondering if that disadvantages my application in any way. Yeah. So again, it sort of depends, right? I mean, it's depending on what the rest of your application look like. Obviously, the earlier you can apply, the better. January is not super late. I mean, certainly most of the class isn't admitted by January and I think it could be okay. But, you know, sort of as I was saying, if you're a splitter or if you're a low, low, the earlier you can apply, the better. But I don't think January is super late by any means. I mean, you still have months until the actual deadline for applications. And even the ability to take it again if you needed to. And just to reiterate, I'm coming out of the UK. So you okay. said that non people going to non-American unis, the LSAT GPA is basically a 0.0, correct? It is. It's a strange thing. So you'll have your undergraduate transcripts will be part of the application. And there is a translation that LSAC gives us where they sort of try to translate the grades, like this kind of equivalent to an A or a B or whatever it is. They'll do that. At the same time, you're right. For reporting purposes to the American Bar Association, for our median numbers, it comes up as what we kind of call a zero GPA. That's exactly right. But LSAC's still going to transpose them and give like a notional figure, pretty much? Yes, absolutely. So there'll still be something in your application where the schools can see how you performed. It's just they're not going to be able to report the GPA, but absolutely, they'll be able to see how you performed in college. And so even, let's say, I'm going into my senior year, what would be my senior year? So they'll just consider all the years I did prior. Like, what if your GPA is goes up by a lot during your senior year after you've applied? Yeah, and so that actually does happen to some folks. So what happens is schools require, well, a couple of different things. So first off, for application purposes, they're going to get whatever transcript you sent to LSAC. So if you've already sent it in, that's the transcript they're going to get, which I guess would have been up until your last year. And so that's the number that's going to come up when they're reading applications. Well, I guess yours is going to be zero, but that's what they're going to see. If it does happen to go up, I mean, I think it's a really good reason to contact the school and to send them an updated transcript. The other thing is that when you matriculate to a school, when you've decided that you want to actually enroll at that school, they're going to require that you send in your final transcript with your degree conferred on it. But for you know strategy for admissions purposes, absolutely. If your GPA goes up, you should definitely reach out to the school to let them know. Okay, Omari, we're going to move on to a couple other people, but thanks so much for asking your question and good luck. Holly, we'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we sure can. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for doing this. This has been really helpful. I just wanted to ask, so I have like a clean record, but I have one traffic ticket. Is that the type of thing that I would need to write an addendum for? Yes. Well, I would say most of the time, yes. So be careful. Read all the law school's prompts for their character and fitness statements. Most schools, I think, say anything. If you even they say even charge. So, and this isn't your situation, but if you were charged with something but you weren't convicted, you still have to include it. But yes, even one traffic ticket still counts. There are some schools, I know the state of Florida is this way, that you know, if, if your the fee you had to pay was less than $250, you don't have to include it. I would say always err on the side of just being safe and included anyway. One ticket, it's really not a big deal. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Good luck, Holly. Sophia, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I have a question. Thank you for doing this, by the way. Much appreciated. I have a question. This is how it pertains to my own personal GPA and whether I have to write an addendum. So I took a year of study abroad off. And before that, I had received bad grades in uh, math courses, so a couple of math courses. But after I came back from study abroad in my last semester, I received nearly all A's. So I improved after I came back. So I wanted to know if I should write an addendum for that. And also my school, they measure GPA with whole like 3.0s and 4.0s. There's no like half steps, so no pluses or minuses, so there's no cushions. So I just wanted to know if I had to write an addendum for this situation. So I think that from a strategy perspective, I would probably write one if I were you. I think anytime there's an upward trend like that, I think it's not a bad idea to point it out to the admissions committee, especially if those first grades, you know, kind of pulled your GPA down. And we always say the same thing, too, when it comes to any any school that has like a, a, a sort of a weird grading system. It's, not, it's never a bad idea to include it. So I don't I mean. You know, of course, you don't have to do anything, but I don't think it's a bad idea to write the addendum in your case. Okay, excellent. So if I do mention that my school has a different grading system, would I also include my unofficial transcript where it says the partial grades or would I wait for the response? I don't think I understand your question. Oh, so because you mentioned to include if the school has a different grading system, like unofficially than officially. So on the official transcript, it has like the grades as they are like whole grades, like A, B, and C. Oh, I see. Gotcha. I don't think that hurts to include basically the transcript that would show the pluses and minus and all. Yeah, I don't think that's a bad idea. Okay, great. All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Good luck. Let's go to Nora. Are you there? Hi, thanks so much for doing this. I had a question about resumes. So I know a lot of people sort of graduate college and they have a job that sort of just pays the bills. Like for me, I was a server my whole senior year of college and then the year after, so I could like study for the LSAT and work on my personal statement. Is that something that you think is beneficial to put on a resume sort of to, I don't know, show you worked in college or to make it seem like you didn't just take a employment off? I think it's totally fine to include that on your resume. And as a matter of fact, and again, this goes back to the beauty of an admissions committee, right? And everyone kind of thinking and feeling different things. There was someone that I worked with in the admissions world that loved seeing people that worked in food service because this person had worked in food service and just knew how hard it was. So I don't think there's anything wrong. I mean, it's part of your story. 
it shows that you, yeah, you had to work and that you were willing to do that. And you obviously had to deal with, I'm sure, rude customers sometimes, and you still kept your cool and all of that. So I don't think it's a bad idea to include it. And I don't think you really have a reason to exclude it. So I'd say, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Sure. Okay. Good luck. Let's move on to Kyle. Hey. So I had a question about diversity statements from non-POCs and how they're viewed by admissions committees. Sure. Full disclosure, I'm white as mayo, but I did grow up in a very low income household. I'm the first person to graduate from college in my immediate family and certainly be the first person to attend law school. And I was wondering if it's worth putting that into a diversity statement or, you know, as a white guy, if I should just skip that part of the application. So I will tell you, um, again, this kind of goes back to the admissions committee and everyone feels differently. I would 100% write a diversity statement if I were you. The way that I sort of view things, which you can find diversity anywhere. And I think your background actually is quite unique for folks who are going to law school. So I see nothing wrong with it. With that said, I know there are, well, I guess a couple of different things. One, there are some schools that in their actual prompt for diversity statements, they'll tell you they only want to see diversity statements from folks who are people of color. And so obviously in that case, you would not want to write one then or submit one. But no, I mean, I think that you definitely have a story to tell. And I think when I don't like to see them, though, is when I feel like people are reaching, but I don't at all think you're reaching with your story. I mean, it's true. It's sort of like, you know, true hardship, true diversity in your situation. So I don't think there's anything wrong with writing it. Thank you. Sure. Okay, good luck. Ariana, we'd love to hear from you. Okay, um, just very quickly, I am entering my junior year of college. So I want to know like the trajectory for what I should be doing in my process to apply for law school. Yeah. So a couple of things I would say, one, it's never too early to start looking at the LSAT, right? So that's like really the first thing folks want to get out the way. So I would say, you know, if you haven't started studying or looking at books and whatnot, however you plan to study, if you plan to take a prep course and you need to save the money for it, start doing that, you know, as soon as you can. So thinking about the LSAT. And then secondly, go ahead and start thinking about your recommendation letters. I think it's always easier to ask professors before you leave college to, you know, that you may be asking them to write one, or if you don't yet have relationships with professors where you were going to feel comfortable asking them to write one, start thinking about that. Start showing up to office hours, start getting connected to a professor so that you're sure that you have someone that can write a strong one for you. And I think everything else will start to, you know, fall into place, but LSAT and recommendation letters are the two things I think I'd focus on if I were you. And obviously your GPA, keep that high. <laughs> hey, thanks so much. Yuyan, we'd love to hear from you. First of all, thank you so much for holding the seminar. It's like really helpful. And um, I have a question. I'm applying to law school later this year in the upcoming cycle. And I'm not super confident on how well I will do on the LSAT. So if my score does not come out as very ideal, do you think I would stand a bigger chance if I apply the cycle anyways and potentially transfer in the future? Or should I hold off on applying the cycle and prepare for the next cycle? Because I'm from another country and in the upcoming year, if I don't go to law school, I could probably take the law exam in my home country and get a certificate. So what do you think about my situation? So have you taken the LSAT at all? Do you have any official score at this point? Not yet. Okay. So the first thing I would say is that I would say most admissions folks want to at least see you take it a couple of times. So if you take it once and you don't like your score, we really don't want to see an addendum about, you know, 
how things went wrong, my LSAT scores low, yada, yada. We really want to see you take it again, at least one time. So I would say try to put it into your plan to take it at least twice. And if you're scoring about the same the second time, then kind of maybe so be it if you don't want to take it again. The rest of that, though, is just super personal. <laughs> I do think there are folks that their strategy is to go to whatever law school they can get into and then to transfer. The benefit about transferring to a law school is that, you know, again, those questions I go back to that admissions committees are thinking as they're reviewing, you know, will you graduate? Will you pass the bar? Will you get a job? So one of those questions you can help answer for them if you start law school somewhere else, right? So you start law school somewhere, you're going to get first year grades. And if you knock it out of the park, the law school you're transferring to may not have as big of a question as to whether or not you can handle law school because you've shown them that you can. And so that is the benefit, I think, of looking to start law school somewhere and then transferring. Then even the job portion of it, usually when you're transferring into law school, you've already secured a summer job. But it's a super personal decision, I think, that you would have to make and just, you know, something to consider. You may want to think about reaching out to the law school if you have like a dream school and sort of telling them the situation too. Um, you know, like, hey, if I really want to come here, what does transferring look like? Like, what do you look for in transfer? Some law schools still pay attention to LSAT score even in transfer. And so that's something important to know. Okay, thank you very much. So you mentioned I should take the LSAT a couple of times, but I see a lot of people saying that it is not something that the admission office would like to see. I don't think folks really want to see you take it seven times, but I think it's one of those things where, all right, you didn't like your score. Did you at least try to take it again? But again, and that was sort of my personal opinion. I mean, there certainly could be admissions folks out there that feel differently or don't want to see it twice. I don't think I know anyone that feels strongly about seeing two LSAT scores. Once you kind of get up there, it's honestly, it can be a waste of time. Most people kind of tend to score in the same score band. Generally speaking, we do see jumps, but generally speaking, people score in the same score band. But again, that's also a question you can ask a school you're looking to go to. You can call and say, hey, I'm interested how do you feel about multiple LSAT scores? Do you look at it negatively? Schools don't mind hearing from students. They honestly, they have people kind of on staff to answer the question. So that's okay to ask the question. <laughs> All right. Unfortunately, we are out of time. So thank you so much, Yuyan, for asking your question. Good luck. Thank you, everyone, for coming. And most of all, thank you, Tiffany, for sharing your knowledge with us. It was really refreshing to hear how you spoke about the process. Absolutely. And interesting to hear about your work in the CIA. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, guys. Good luck to everyone. Good luck to everyone. Hi, it's JY again. Thanks for listening. I hope you found this episode useful. As always, you can reach out to us for help on sevenstage.com slash admissions. See you next time. Thank you.